Welcome everyone to the 52nd Fireside Chat. We have some very interesting questions today and we have some new guests with us too. Thank you all for being here. Julia, if you would like to go ahead with your question. Yeah, sure. Um, well, sorry that I'm a bit of a disembodied voice. Uh, my webcam's not working. Um, so I just want to say hi, Tom. I'm a big fan of MBT and it's completely changed my life for the better. So thank you. Um, oh, you, you're welcome, Julia. Yeah, thank you. Um, my question today is specifically about extreme physical suffering and healing. So up until about six months ago, I was really happy and healthy and had lots of challenges in my life, but I was just generally still joyous and getting on with things. And um, in recent months, I've been struck down by what I feel is just a challenge too far for me. Um, so I've developed what feels like debilitating symptoms of extreme nausea, which is 24 hours a day. Um, and the doctors have some idea of what is going on, um, but there's no particular treatments and it's kind of like a chronic condition. And um, I absolutely love my life and want to continue on. But sad to say, for the first time ever, I felt completely trapped and have, have had some suicidal thoughts and just just don't know what to do because I'm not able to kind of eat and sleep and these kind of things. Um and so I was kind of hoping to try to heal myself using some of the MBT techniques mm -hmm. that I thought. Um, but I'm kind of doubting whether this is possible and I'm finding it hard to change my mindset. Um, and I'm, I'm doubting it because I kind of feel like I'm probably not proficient enough yet to heal myself. And um, because I've also never witnessed anyone being healed in this way, I think I'm a bit sceptical about whether it's possible. And I think mm -hmm. these beliefs are getting in my way um so I was just wondering what your views are and whether healing from such a physical suffering is possible and if so how I may go about this and um just any other thoughts or general advice that you might have you said the docs had some idea what the problem was but there yeah. just wasn't any treatment what did they think the problem was they think it's um severe gastroparesis which is um when your stomach empties very slowly and uh, they think that's what it is and it just causes absolute severe nausea and vomiting. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, the question would be, well, what causes that? Yeah. If, if that causes the nausea, then it, it itself has to have a cause. Yeah. But you're right. If you have, I mean, it's good to be very skeptical. Yeah. Uh, that's a good thing. But at the same time, when you're very skeptical, it's very hard to do things that are, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, that you don't really believe are possible. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to get into it. It's hard to get it. It's hard to project that, uh, that intent from the being level when at the being level, you, you can't be, you know, a hundred percent, um, what can I say, you know, on board with it. So that is a difficult thing. Yeah. But I would suggest a couple things for you. One, yes, it is possible to heal those kinds of things yeah. uh, mentally. Uh, no doubt about that. Matter of fact, things that have no other other uh, diagnose or have no other way to heal than the mental is the is usually the the uh, the only thing that heals them. So mm -hmm. I'd say yes, you could be healed that way, mm -hmm. and it's going to be very difficult for you to do it because you haven't you know, learn the skills and practice them and you're not familiar with the process and so on. So you should find uh, what's called a healing circle. 
Mm-hmm. And sometimes it comes by other names, but there are dozens of groups of people all over the planet, and you'll find them in different countries, that because they can heal with their intents mm-hmm. and because they mostly are fairly good at it, although some people are just practicing and beginning, mm-hmm. uh, they will get together like once a week or once a month, and there'll be 10 or 12 of them, and they will have a list of people that they're working on, mm-hmm. and they do not charge money. If they do charge money, then I would say go someplace else. It's not the right attitude. They uh, they don't charge for it, and they will put you on their list. You can uh, uh, describe the symptoms that you have, and I think for most of them, the only thing they ask is that if there's any changes, that you notify them so they have some feedback on whether or not they're being uh, successful or not. And you could get two or three or four different groups, you know, get on their list. Mm-hmm. There's one there's one such group that works out of the MBT forum. Um oh, I, I think Donna runs that one. It's called uh Outpouring. I joined that I one. Yeah. Did you? I joined that okay. one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you should you should join as many of them as you can find on the internet so that you get okay. people, you know, on their list, people working uh on you and hopefully that will fix it. Okay. I will do that. Yeah, so that would be the thing. And yes, that can fix it. So don't uh, give up hope and don't despair. It will get better. Now, you can fix it too. You can help with that fixing just by a real positive attitude. That's what will make it work better. There's nobody that has more power over your body than yourself. Mm-hmm. So you are, you are a, a strong, uh, you know, one of the, one of the stronger, um, forces that are maybe pushing and pulling this illness either to be, you know, less ill or more ill. So if you have a negative attitude toward it, oh no, you know, I can't get rid of this. What if I have to live with this the rest of my life? Uh, that would be terrible. If you have those kinds of thoughts, then that will inhibit uh, others from healing you as well. So just stay positive. Yes, it can be done and um, keep a positive attitude toward it. Try to um, have a sense that it is going to go away, and you will get over it. That will help a lot. Okay. I know and that's I hard to do, that's hard to do when you're yeah. sitting there nauseous. You know, it's a very <laughs> it's a very difficult thing to do. Well, you know, I I have a sense that I increase the probability of this actually happening because I would often say, you know. Bizarrely, I don't really fear death that much, but what I do fear is suffering. And I would often say this to my friends or my family. And now, uh, now, uh-huh. here, I am. <laughs> now yes. here I am suffering. <laughs> yes, so you increase the probability of suffering just by having that thought in your mind. Yeah. Yes. That. <laughs> well, the the good news there is that things that get put that way from a mental space can be taken away easily from that yeah. from a mental space. May be hard for you to take it away, but it shouldn't be too hard for others. Okay, I will. So yes, I think that will, uh, you know, that should fix it for you. Okay. Give me a second here. Let me look in the future a little bit. Get into that future probability and see your chart. Um. Yeah, I see that you're probably going to get better. So have that as an attitude. Okay. That you're going That's to get news. better. That's a good. It's a good probability. That right now is the probability. It won't be instantaneous, but it will get better slowly, 
And then after uh, it gets better, you know, just marginally for a few days, it will start getting better quicker and then you'll be over it. So okay. that's the way I see it being most probable in the probable future. Okay, so, well, that's good news. <laughs> yeah, so feel, feel, feel positive and uh, don't say, okay, well, now that I'm suffering, how do I like it? You know, that isn't uh, yeah. because you, you were trying to, you know, avoid it. You say, well, I just don't want to suffer, but that does put energy into into the suffering when you say things. So just consider this a lesson and you're going to get over it. You're going to learn it. You're going to stay positive. You're not going to let it get you down. You're not going to let it uh, pull you, say, into self-pity. Oh, woe is me. You know, my life, you know, nauseous is, is awful. Just don't go there. Stay positive and uh, you'll get over it. Okay. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Julia, for bringing that up and I just want to mention one thing Tom there may still be um, a healing forum on the forum a healing center on the forum I will check into that and make sure Julie gets that information uh, also you. MBT outpour outpouring is on Facebook where you can put in your requests uh, there. and we have some very good healers there uh, I've made uh, Beth Haley an admin April Hannah Marla Freeze, they're all very good, and all of us work together on anything that's posted there. Um, we do want to go on to the next question, and we'll take a question from Titi. Uh, this question is about a borderline that I have ran into, um, and it's about being helpful or not. Um, there are situations or contexts where you may need to question if your intention of being helpful is helpful. And yes. maybe help can suppress someone's, someone else's growth. I have noticed. Yes. <laughs> for example, yeah, it might be good for a person to experience the consequences of mm -hmm. certain choices instead of having someone interfering with the aim of being helpful, like I do sometimes. Or it could be good for someone to, to do something difficult by themselves and succeed. Mm. Or it could also be good if you stand up for what you think is right, although it will mean that someone will get a challenge because of that. So there is a soft borderline here, I think, and it's I find it very, very tricky to understand if I should step aside and let things play out sometimes or step in and try to make things easier for a person. Yeah, yeah. Th um, that, is, that is often called the parent's dilemma. You know, that's oh. the dilemma that parents have all the time with their children. You know, mm. when do you protect them and when do you let them go have their own experience? Mm. When do you tell them what to do and what not to do? And when do you allow them to make their own choices? You know, mm. you don't want them to get hurt. You don't want them to do things so foolish that it ends up, you know, a problem for them. And certainly you have to protect them if they're young enough that they, you know, like not playing in the street, right? That has to be a hard mm. rule. If your mm. three-year-olds want to throw their ball in the street, it's like, no, you can't do that. It's too dangerous. But mm. that is a, yeah, that's a very um, uh, important question is when when is your help not help? 
When does your help get in the way of somebody else growing up and learning how to make better choices? And I think you just have to look at the results. If you are helping and you're getting pushback from whoever you're trying to help, well, that's one, that's one thing that says they are not so sure that you're helping is, is, uh, is what they want. So that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not helpful, but uh, at least you're getting that message back from them if you get pushback. The other thing to do is look at the, you know, depending on their age, if they're adults, if they're, you know, 15 or 16 or older, you know, older teens and adults, then they're at a stage that they need to make their own choices. And you can't always protect them. But what you can do is give them guidance around the possibilities without telling them actually what choice to make or how to be. You can, you can say, well, if you, if you go this route, you know, this good thing might happen and this awful thing might happen. If you go this other route, you know, these good things or those awful things might happen. And just point out all the different possibilities for the different choices that they could make and then let them go, you know, make the choice they want to make and let them know you'll always be there for them no matter what choice they make. So that's kind of the approach you do with children, you know, that you have. And I think the same thing works in any situation where you're not sure when you're, when you're uh, enabling, you know, sometimes you're trying to help people and all you're doing is helping them maintain bad habits. You know, that's, then yeah. you're called, mm. then you're called an enabler. You know, mm. you just, um, you know, and I guess that often comes out like if you keep handing an alcoholic money to buy alcohol with, then, okay, you don't want them to be destitute and not have money, but at the same time, you're enabling them to maintain their habit. So these are very difficult questions. And you're right, you know, to think that, oh, I, you know, they're hard. They're very hard questions. And one pat answer isn't good for everybody, for all the questions. You have to look at each possibility. Okay, if if I do help, what's that going, you know, where's that going to lead? If I don't help, where's that going to lead? And if I do help, leads to a fight or leads to anger or leads to someplace, then obviously you need to do something differently because that's not really helping. If, you're, if your help is greatly appreciated, then you probably are helping a lot. If your help is being refused, but you see they just need it anyway, then you should try a different approach other than just trying to tell them what the better choice is. You see, then you need to back off and just tell them the possibilities and give them guidance, but not tell them what to do. And if none of those choices are available, all you can do is sit back and hope for the best. You have to let people live their own life. So let's say they're adults. Let's say you're, you know, your problem is with a parent or with a coworker, right? Now, these aren't children or even young adults. These are people that are supposed to be able to make their own choices. At that point, you can try to be helpful. If you get pushed back, you can try to point out possibilities and probabilities out of your own experience. Like, I've been there. I've done that. I know how this works. And you can explain those possibilities to them, but don't try to tell them what they should do. Or don't even imply what it is they should do. Let them make their choice. Mm -hmm. But if all of that doesn't help, then your low entropy solution is just to do nothing. Because you're doing, when you are giving help where help is not wanted, 
you're generally creating a problem. You're creating more of a problem than you are with a help. You just have to let people go do what they do. And that's where the sad part of love comes in. Love can be sad. You know, you can love, let's say, two people very much, but these two people constantly fight with each other. And you can love both of them. Say, your mother and your father, or, you know, two siblings. And they may just be in constant fighting, and there's just nothing you can do about it. You've tried to help, you've tried to mediate, you've tried to do things, but you just create more trouble when you try, so you just have to let it be. They're going to fight, and you may even have to watch it if it's something going on in your family, but you just have to say that's the path they're on. There's nothing I can do about that. I've tried, and I only make it worse. So now the low entropy thing is stop making it worse. Butt out and let them go on. So love can sometimes be very sad. And then when it gets bigger than your family, you have the issue. You look out into the world and you love everybody, but you see we're so dysfunctional out in the world. There's so many people trying to take advantage of other people. But rather than get get overwhelmed by that, I meet people all the time that are so overwhelmed with all the, all the horrible things going on in the world that they can't function. They're so upset about all the meanness and all the greed and all the, you know, the, the nastiness and the war and the poverty and the on and on and on. They get so upset by that they can't function. They can hardly, you know, they can hardly go through the day because of it. Well, see, that's a problem. They shouldn't do that. You just have to let people be. You have to say everybody's doing about the best they can with what they got. It is what it is. You know, I can't fix it. They have to grow up to fix it, and I can't make them grow up. I can only give them a good example, and that's it. So then you just have to let it be and not let it drag you down because you have to realize you can't change everything. You can't fix everything. And sometimes people you love just are going to hurt each other or they're going to self-destruct, you know, like somebody who's depressed. You may try to get them out of that depression, but it may just not be something you can do. And then you have to accept that it is that way. And then always be nice around them. Always care for them. Tell them you love them, but don't expect them to be any different than they are. Mm -hmm. So that's the sad part of love. We have to let people be. And there's lots of things we can't fix. And we have to live with that and live with it gracefully, not live with it with this huge burden on our back of all the awful things in the world that we can't fix. That's not good. That just weighs you down and your growth. You need to go on with your life and let them go on with theirs. And if it ends badly for them, well, try to pick up what pieces you can help them where you can, but realize that you can't always help people that you love or that you care about. You just can do your best. And after that, you have to let it come out however it comes out. But don't let it drag you down. See, that's, that's a problem. If you get so, you, you know, if you feel failed because you can't fix it, then that's going to stunt your own growth, feeling failed. So you have to accept it and let it go. So those are the opportunities, you know. 
offer the advice and the help when you can and when it's taken it's fine when it's not taken and it causes a problem then don't offer advice just offer possibilities don't make a choice for them or don't even nudge them toward a choice just give them possibilities like you're you're totally you know let them make whatever choice they want but here are some things from my experience that i can show you that maybe you can use or not use and just let it open like that not like you're trying to convince them of something but you're just going to put some facts out there right no emotion in it and then the last thing is that if, if none of that works then you just have to accept that they are old enough to make their own choices Obviously, these, that doesn't apply to a child. A three-year-old isn't old enough to make their own choices, so then you just say no, put a lock on the gate, and that's the end of it. You know. But once they get older, you can't do that. You have to give them a leeway to make some choices, even if they're bad choices. You can bring in other people, someone that uh, somebody else that maybe they give more credibility to or more trust in, and let them uh, see if they can't uh, be helpful. Or ask them, is there any way that I can be helpful? What what would be most helpful to you? And they may say, just leave me alone. Well, in that case, I think you just need to leave them alone and and uh, wait until they burn and crash, and then maybe they'd be more interested in some help. And then you can help them. This life can be very trying, and it isn't always a happy space. A lot of things that are going to happen in your life and things have happened in my life that are hard to bear. But that's just part of it, and we have to bear it, and we have to bear it without letting it, you know, drag us down. We have to bear it with with grace. So life can be tough. Does that help any? Very much. Very much. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I know you've got a couple more questions, Sidi. Please go ahead with them. That's fine. Um, I've been practicing the healing tool that we learned in England and some questions have arisen around that. Um, as I understood, you need to be very specific with your query. But when you do healing on a few persons several times a day, it feels like overkill if you identify them by names and context every time. So it feels more natural just healing them because you sort of, you know who they are and you just connect with them sort of. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if a frequent user sort of get a cookie in the sense that the database has awareness enough to identify who you are and who you are healing from that deep intention without words, so to say. Yes. Yeah, the words don't have to be spoken words. They just have to be mm-hmm. an intent. As long as your intention is towards somebody with a unique address, you know, a name, a person, a relationship, uh, uh, you know, that person that uh, my friend Susie told me about, you don't even have to know their name. That's just a unique thing. And as long as there's a unique identifier in your own mind, that's all you need. That mm. will get your that will get your healing intent to the right place. Mm. Yeah. Good, because it felt like that, so I yes. just wanted to check. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, another thing about healing is also because um, mostly when we talk about healing, we think about sickness or health or mental health or something. But if you would like, for instance, 
work on someone who is feeling lonely and replace sickness with loneliness and do the laser on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, is that manipula manipulative or is that okay to work with other areas than just health? Just anything that you would like to, to help the person with physically, but you can't, then you can do it non-physically. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You can do that with loneliness or anything else. You can be mm -hmm. helpful with that. Now, whether it's manipulative or not isn't isn't a matter of in the healing in the action it's a mattering of the intent you know oh. why are you doing that if the reason that you are doing that is to just be helpful because somebody's unhappy or lonely mm -hmm. and uh, so on then that's fine you can mm -hmm. do that and it will work well but uh, you know the other thing we learned there was to how to connect with people telepathically how to talk to mm -hmm. them yeah. if somebody's mm -hmm. lonely you can just you, know, you can just chat with them. You yeah. can go in and have conversations. Sometimes that'll mm. help. But you can also yeah. cheer them up. You can give them mm. with your with your intent, like the healing. You can give them, uh, uh, we'll say, energy. The metaphor, energy. Mm. You can use your mm. energy to um, make them feel better, to make them feel happier, to make them mm. feel cheerier, mm. to make them feel like going outside and taking a walk. If all they do is you know sit in the chair and watch the TV, you mm. can you can give them some good um, feelings as well as fix illnesses. Yes, it works at the emotional level as well as a physical level. Mm. Yeah, there's another borderline between some, you both, you, it feels like you both chat and heal and do everything at the same time, actually. So they sort of go together. Yes, yeah, it all works, good, it all yeah. works together. Just one yeah, kind of whole yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Um, well, is it okay that I take another question or should we wait and get some other yeah, people going ahead instead? Please go um, ahead. That's fine. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. So this is the last question and it's about uh, fear work. Uh, and it's about um, sometimes when you work with fears, I wonder if there's another borderline between suppressing or removing fears. For for example, mm. if you have a big fear that you regularly regularly work with, you have maybe initial initially listened to it and felt it and sort of it has sort of lost uh, the battle and decayed, but then it gets back to you and you stop. Um, and you and, it, and you uh, fight with it a little bit, and then it decays again. But then that's the question here: if because these fears they come knocking at the door every, every day, and I sort of let them go. But sometimes when I let them go, it feels like I may be suppressing them instead of removing them. So, yes. so that's a little bit tricky, I think. It is. It's a little tricky. Um, you have to, when you get rid of them, you have to have an intention to get rid of them. And that intention has to be a being level intent. You really have to want to get rid of them at the being level, not just at the intellectual level. Mm -hmm. If it's working at the intellectual level, then the intellectual level will make them disappear. All right, I'm not going to act that way anymore 
act is the key word. I'm not going to act that way anymore. That just suppresses a fear. I'm not going to be that way anymore. Now that gets rid of the fear. You see, it's so you have to make it clear in your mind that it's something I don't want to be. I don't want to be fearful. I don't want to have that fear. I don't want to be fear that fear. I don't want to have that fear in my being. I want to be done with it. I want it to be gone, right? So it's that sort of thing. If it's I don't want to act that way rather than I don't want to be that way, then that will just suppress it and it'll come back. You won't act that way as long as you're focused on not acting that way, but as soon as you stop the focus, then the fear will come right back. So there is a difference there. And it is sometimes difficult to tell which you're doing because your intellect and your being level for most people is just all kind of mixed up in a wad and you don't really have a good differentiation between them. That's pretty typical. Then you just have to keep focusing on the I don't want to be that way part of it mm-hmm. ever, not just in this behavior with this person at this time, but Ever. I don't want that to come up in any of its multiple ways because these fears will express themselves in multiple ways. It's not usually just a, a one way. They, lots of ways they come up. So just keep your intent focused on I don't want to be that way, not that you don't want to act that way. And we tend to think in terms of action rather than being. So our natural way of doing this, if we don't stop and, and uh, you know look at it closely, is to say I don't want to act that way. But that tends to suppress. So that would be the difference between them. And if they keep coming back, it could be either one. Because even if you have a good intent at the being level, they still might come back. It takes a little while for those fears to disappear. So just the fact that it comes back sometimes doesn't mean that you're not doing it right. You may be doing it at the being level, and it's just going to take some more effort before you get rid of it altogether. Those fears fight back. They don't want to be, they don't want to be ripped up by the roots and thrown out. So they tend to fight back and they'll push you even harder sometimes when you, when you start to get rid of them. So, um, just that they come back is not necessarily means that you're not doing it right. Mm -hmm. So don't feel like you must not be doing it right because they keep coming back, but just keep working at that being level. I don't want to react that way. I don't want to be that way. When those things come up, it's not that you just, you know, somebody comes up that, that, uh, would, says something that would make you angry rather than just smiling and not getting angry, but you really are, you know, you just suppress the anger. That's not helpful. Suppressed anger will just make you sicker. You know, it will just make your life harder. You don't want to suppress that behavior. You want to get rid of it so that they say those things and they don't make you angry at all. You just can accept that opinion and realize it's not about you it's them it's about it's their opinion and you don't have to take that on because you don't have the fear that that connects that comment with you so difficult but just keep working and i think that will resolve itself yeah yeah good thank you very much you're welcome very helpful tom Mm. thank you for your question and we will go next to Jan P. He's uh, newly joined the Fireside Chat, and he has two questions. So please go ahead with both of those questions, Jan. Okay, thank you. 
Okay, thank you, Donna. Um, going ahead with um, the question about meditation and states of awarenesses. <sighs> so, Tom, you talked a lot about widening the situations where you can meditate. And I feel mm -hmm. when I when you have a stable meditation state, all the sensations sensations are still there, but the meditator is more of an observer. It's, it's going like like um, he's interpreting all those sensations as experiences and not part of um, himself or itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, that the meditator chooses on a different level. Like I don't move my hand, but I have the intention to move it, and I see it move basically. And that meditators choose what they want to experience. Like they can switch on and off different uh, types of experiences when they are experienced in it. Mm -hmm. And I remember once being in that state and I chose the feeling I wanted to have and the situation became something that would support that. But also just turning on and off sensations on and doing other things. That is what uh, you probably call parallel processing. Mm -hmm. Um And I uh, uh, also I felt like seeing some people differently as if they are meditators too. Um, it rarely happened because it was um, on some occasions <laughs> and there was familiarity there and a relaxing feeling. It was like another realm or level and I, in, and I interpreted uh, the state as the next state you naturally grow in into where life can just unfold by itself based on inner more deeper choices not like mm -hmm. the intellectual choices. And that other people on that realm or stage with the same kind of mental training can see each other and recognize that they are in a somewhat different state. I can remember one situation where I was um, with a friend. I do have to say it wasn't drugs. And I was really, really fearful because I had a really fearful event happening beforehand, which changed my life completely. Um, it was like a... Um, uh, was like a death experience and and then I accepted it and yeah so on and the process began uh, <laughs> working on the fear of death um, yeah and then I was always like um, uh, contracted um, in, inside and I felt like my friend was trying to pull me out of that and but but was gently with it um, and at some point um, my intellect stopped and something lightened up inside and suddenly his appearance changed. Like if there's something, uh, there was a layer of person in front of him and then that layer changed and the real person I saw then and there was a connection suddenly and it's, wow, what, what is this? And then my intellect started again and he said, oh, there you are. And then my intellect started, the fear came in and then I was uh, uh, back uh, back in the fear state again and he changed immediately into the into these, the other state uh, that, that I was used to um, mm -hmm. uh, interpreting him. So that was something I uh, um, was aware of two times. And since then, I think that has uh, something to do with authenticity and uh, being real. And if you are real, then you might be able to see other people more clearly. Uh, without the fear and all, and all that stuff. Um, did I some, did I miss something? Yeah. And I just wanted to thank you that, um, that all the work that, that you do, that you did and all, and, and, and the team, um, helped me so much, um, with getting rid of all those patterns and fears like, um, uh, 
doing something to to uh, how how can I say it? It's like um, do something just to make the situation comfortable for me to to act like so others don't get annoyed, others don't get uh, this uh, discomfort um, beside me, and then I w didn't want them to annoy. And that's that's a really big pattern in my life. I wanted to to get rich, and it changed. It's just like uh, it's it's like a real person that always catches me. It's like the whole fear pattern comes in, gets me, and I act like that. And now I see it. Now I see all those patterns, and I can recognize it, and I can, yeah, I can basically step out of it and watch it. And if the intent is really right, I can transform the feeling of the fear. It's like the same as love. It's just to be interpreted in a different way, if you understand it. Like the fear comes in, and then you can choose to act as as the fear, or you can mm -hmm. really see the, the, the difference, like you said, It's not about you, it's about the other person. And if the pattern is really, really strong and often repeated in the past and not being uh, worked mm -hmm. at, it catches you really easily. And if you're trying to work at it and it gets better, then you can get a better distance uh, at times. And uh, continuously you get better and better and you get uh, less and less um, distracted and triggered by the ego and the fear and stuff. Yeah, so that's something I uh, wanted to share and wanted to ask if is if it is like that with this layer of persons. If you are fearful and that it was really transformative. It like it, he really changed his face and his appearance and everything changed. And that was mm -hmm. something. Uh, yeah, was on my mind. Yeah. Uh, all the things, you sound like you are making great progress. You sound like you have uh, done the hard work. The hardest thing to do is to see those fear patterns and accept them. That, oh, yeah, those are me. You know, those things do come over me. And I don't have to do that. I can step out of it. So those are the two hardest things. And once you have those things, it's just a matter of practice before you can get free of it. You can work your way out of it. Now, that takes a lot more time to work your way out of it, but the, you've already got the two hard things done. So I think that you will work your way out of it and, and uh, you're on the right track. The thing you saw with your friend, remember your reality, the things you see come to you in a data stream. The system gives you a data stream and then you interpret that data stream to be reality. So in this case, you were getting data um Probably about your friend and your friends, the fact that he is helpful and the fact that he has some qualities that maybe, uh, you know, you would like to, to, uh, to grow to and some other things about him. And you're getting that information and then you're interpreting it in, in terms of these pictures that you see. What you see is your interpretation of the data you get. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that your friend was doing anything. You know, the friend may have just been standing there. It doesn't mean that he necessarily changed and he did all this stuff. That's that's the data you get. It's not necessarily what he was trying to do or that anything that he actually did. You were just seeing maybe different aspects of him and yourself. And you were seeing those in a way that you realized that, yes, you this stuff 
is real. You know, it is, it is like that. You know, there's all these different aspects to us. And the fact that you turned this, these aspects of him into something that was appeared physical to you, you know, his face changed and his body changed. Well, that's a good symbol or a good metaphor for when you get rid of the fears like you're working on, you become a different person. You become a wholly different person. And with those fears, you're one way. Without them, you're much lighter. You're much happier. You know, you interact better with people. Your relationships get better. You know, just everything because you are really a different person than you were before. So take what you saw as a metaphor. You can ask your friend about it and say, did he feel anything? And he may or may not have felt anything. It's possible that he could, you know, telepathy telepathically connect with you and give you information of different images, but that's a long shot. Unless that's something he's into or whatever, that's probably not what what happened. Probably you just got all that in your data stream and those were your images and the way you the metaphors that you made to understand something about change and being different and sometimes being confused, sometimes being several people <laughs> You know, you're, you're, you're the person that gets trapped by the fear. You're also the person that can get out of it. So for a while, you're kind of on the, you're kind of both places. You know, you're, you're, you're some of this and some of that. And that, uh, that's kind of the metaphor. I think that you were, that you were getting. So that's where you are now. You're in transition between being uh, trapped by these fear patterns and being able to go beyond them, being able to, uh, work through them. And yes, just like the the uh, more robust meditation, you can have things going on in your background that you're aware of, but you don't necessarily have to process them. You can step away from them. You can just let them be there, be on their own, and you're not working with them. They're there in your background and not really part of what you're processing, not part of you as a functional person. So that's some way, you know, maybe you're using that metaphor to help you step out of these, these fear traps. You know, maybe that fear stuff is there, but you're not processing it anymore, but you can feel it just hanging there. But those are, these are metaphors and it's your metaphors for, for transitioning out of this fear. So use whatever metaphors work for you. That's, that's good. So yeah, all the things you're experiencing are real things. And it sounds like you're making great progress. Just keep working on it. It will, as long as you have that intent to not be in the way that that fear pushes you to be, then those fears will eventually get weaker and weaker and leave you alone. Good to hear because always those thoughts come in and they really are uh really sticky and want, want to annoy me. And then some, some thoughts, you hang on and then the fear comes in all, all the things that uh, um, connect right. to this thought. And that's really interesting if you watch that and how it works. And that's very interesting. Yeah. How yeah. So you just more and more need to push that fear stuff, the fear related stuff away and just get it out of your life. Exit it altogether. Not just tame it, but get rid of it. And you'll do that just with the intention to do that. Is, is that intention like something from here, like coming from here out and then like this energy metaphor that you would use uh, that 
um, just having a picture or something that one person can use because intention is something I really struggle with. It's like um, sometimes I use pictures, sometimes I just use a bundle of uh, things together, like it's a packet that I just intuitively yeah. pick up and then send out or something. Yeah, these are your metaphors. Okay. And you can make up metaphors. You can make up a metaphor that uh, here's that fear thing and it's trying to surround me and I encase myself in this bubble of light and I won't let it I won't let it get to me. Now I grow my bubble bigger and bigger, which pushes the fear thing further and further away. And then, you know, I take a big vacuum cleaner and suck that fear thing up and, you know, and now I take the bag out of the vacuum cleaner and throw it in the sun. You know, you can make up all these metaphors that let you deal with things. So there's just ways of focusing your intent. Your intention is to get rid of it. So, yeah, use all the metaphors that you like, that make sense to you, that make, uh, you know, they all work. They're just ways of you focusing your intent. It gives you something um, that's easier to work with. You know, the metaphors are easier to work with with your mind. As long as it's very abstract, it's hard to get a handle on it and hard to act with it. That's why we make up metaphors to help us deal with things like that. So, yes, go ahead. You know, make metaphors and, and use them. I could just call those tools, and those tools can be very, very helpful. And change tools. So once you have a tool and... You think of a better one or you can, that one doesn't work so much, then make up another tool. Yeah, I'll try that. I tried it with, with a bubble already and try to push um, every thoughts out. That's funny. Yeah. That. yeah. <laughs> okay, then I would ask the other question if it's okay. You, you said on it, it's fine, right? Yeah. Okay, good. So uh, the question is about, uh, wait, uh, ah, yeah, replayable experience packets. Because I once had an idea while, while walking that suddenly came in. Because um, all the data streams we get um, are just data streams, right? And then the, the idea came that um, you often say that the player changes future probability through intent and interpretation and other means. Okay, I don't know why I mm -hmm. typed that in. But <laughs> because that maybe ah, never mind. Okay, I had an idea about how we experience life as a, as a person. So if we get into this reality, a probable optimal growth is already planted or seeded. Yeah, right. And as we go with fear along the way, this optimal probable way changes. So getting rid of all the fear calibrates the avatar's life again to what was supposed to be uh, the optimal way. And the other thing is. So can the avatar be played by different IOCs in their specific growth state? Um, I mean, I thought that maybe if this avatar in my experience dies, like this experience packets, uh, packet die, uh, ends for my IOC, is it still available to be replayed from other IOCs? Or is that avatar and all the other experience packets with specific avatars just one time play, playable and this uh, reality uh, continuous and not be... Uh, replayable. Yeah, they're yeah they're not replayable. They're all just they're all just one-offs. Each uh, each avatar is a unique thing. Now the growth continues. You know, what the IUOC grows up, lowers its entropy, increases its quality of consciousness because of the choices that that it has made through that avatar. So the quality of consciousness goes up in the IUC. So when it has another avatar, it starts with a higher quality of consciousness. So 
you have an accumulative function in the IUOC, in the individuated unit of consciousness. So that is continuing to grow and evolve, uh, but the avatar itself, that particular entity, is just a one-off. And when it's done, it's done. You you get another avatar to play from a, hopefully, if you've evolved, from a, a more caring and loving position. If you've de-evolved, you get to play the next one from, you know, a, a less evolved, a more fearful position. So, yes, it's just a one-off with each one. They don't have... Um, it's not that somebody takes it and works it through different stages because it's all accumulating within one experience group. You know, all the, all the avatars that your IUC has ever had, all that experience is held within that one individuated unit of consciousness. And it can sort through all of that. Every time a, a new experience packet gets, gets done, it takes that and, and, uh, kind of compares it and and uh, synthesizes it with all the other experience that it has because sometimes you can learn things, you can see patterns. Like you can look at all those experiences and say, oh, I see this pattern here and I see, you know, that problem. That's one I have to work on. So that's why they wouldn't just get another IUC, play different things. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the patterns developing like that. You wouldn't be able to to uh, to grow in that cumulative way if each stage of your growth was a different IUOC. So it's it's um that free will awareness unit is a one off. Alright. And what do you think about this uh, idea um that reality um and the avatar has like a probable um super way um like like a probable optimal way and it's like seeded I mean it's it's all probable. And the most probable is the most optimal yeah. in the beginning. And as we go in and fear starts to build, this, um, this shifts um, and goes into different directions. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that metaphor. You know, it's, um, you could say that there is, you know, a, a theoretical optimum path that you might take based on the choices that you have. But because the, the choices that you have aren't known ahead of time. The choices that you have just happen because of other choices that other people make. You know, other people's choices affect your choices. So you, you don't have just a, a known set of choices that you can have a known optimum path through. But there is no reason why you can't have that as a as kind of a model or a, or a metaphor. It's you're saying, well, there is these optimum choices I can make. Every time I come to a choice, there's some optimal choice I could make here. In this instance, from what I, from what I know, you know, from my past, I've got an optimal and try to find that optimal. What is that optimal? And you're right. It, you know, once you get rid of the fear, then you make all your choices optimally from there on. Once the fear is gone, all your choices just become naturally optimal choices. It's the fear that keeps that process from, from working very well. So that is a way of, of, uh, looking at it that could be useful to you.